Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. This week, the United States officially opened the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, a move that has generated praise as well as controversy and unrest in the region and around the globe. Mikhail Svart is a human rights lawyer in Israel and author of the recent book, The Wall and the Gate, Israel, Palestine, and Legal Battle for Human Rights. As an advocate for human rights, he offers a different perspective on the much-covered conflict. I talked with Svart earlier this year, shortly after President Trump announced that the U.S. would move its embassy to Jerusalem. I asked him how the announcement is being received, as well as what he sees as the future of Israel and Palestine. Well, um, I'm an Israeli uh, who believes that... Uh, um, for the, for the future of Israel, it is, it is crucial to bring an end to the occupation, to uh, create a new reality in which uh, all um, 11 million people who live between the Jordan River and the sea will have civil rights and would have uh, their liberties uh, and fundamental rights uh, respected. Now, how do we get there? Uh, and in recent years, the, 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 uh, the international community uh, rallied around the two-state solution. Uh, I think uh, uh, the recent uh, changes in, in the uh, American administration's policy have been counterproductive and have undermined the two-state solution. Um, Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which, uh, um, which runs against uh, the, um, the principle that, uh, that is a fundamental part of the post-world Second World War international order, that uh, uh, sovereignty is not acquired through force. Mm -hmm. And thus, uh, the annexation of East Jerusalem uh, has not been recognized by, by any other country in the world. And actually, when it happened, uh, all, all countries have moved their embassies from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. Now, the, 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 the move back to Jerusalem with the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital undermines uh, that principle. Uh, and not only that it uh, will, uh, in general, um, incentivize uh, governments to uh, acquire land through force, but in, specifically when it comes to the Israel-Palestinian conflict, it, uh, um, it undermines the idea that America could play a net neutral and, uh, and, uh, um, and contributing role in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace process. And it's, uh, it's really sad to see that the Palestinians have lost confidence completely for the, for the foreseeable future in America. And, what, and even when uh, uh, a room uh, would convene with Israeli and Palestinians to negotiate, it seems that uh, America's role uh, uh, will not be the same as it was. And that's, and that's a big uh, uh, loss, because America is not only the only superpower, but it is also a very important uh, uh, actor in, in international diplomacy, and having it uh, being uh, uh, seen as a non-fair uh, uh, arbitrator, not fair, non-fair uh, prov provider of good offices, is, is uh, I think, uh, um, uh, pushes the, the prospects of, of a peace um, solution um, to the to the far future, and that's and that's a shame. Mechia, help us in the West, specifically here in the United States, to, to understand or frame, if, um, if you will, this conflict. Well, the context is uh, one that, uh, as you said, gener is generally uh, ignored or not highlighted. And the context is that 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago, 
Israel has conquered territories. And in those territories, there were uh, millions of people living. And, um, and under the regime of occupation, these people temporarily are, are, are stripped of their civil rights. So they are not, they don't have the right to vote or to be elected. And the norms that govern their lives are being decided by a military commander and by the government uh, of Israel, uh, to, where they are not represented. And international law allows this situation to, um, to uh, take place temporarily and until a, um, a consensual settlement, a consensual agreement is reached. The problem is that uh, uh, most of those 50 years, Israel has, uh, Israeli governments have applied policies that perpetuate rather than bring an end to the occupation, that change the, demo the demography and the landscape of the occupied territories. Um, bringing in more than half a million of settlers, Israeli settlers, into the occupied territory. And that creates a myriad of human rights issues, because when you have two communities living side by side, one empowered uh, with rights um, and, and, and with connections and with uh, uh, representation in, 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 in governmental agencies and in the, gov in the arms of government, and one that is completely stripped of rights, Naturally, there is, a, there is a clash here, and uh, one community uh, is, um, is eating up um, the wealth of the country on the expense of the other. So that's the context, I would say. Your book chronicles several human rights cases in the Israeli courts regarding the occupation. One, a farmer in the West Bank who was cut off from his fields by the separation barrier, a seemingly simple solution from those of us from the outside looking in would be to install a gate to allow the farmer to reach his field. But you raise some pertinent and difficult philosophical questions that we might not necessarily consider from the outside looking in. From a human rights perspective, how do you reconcile those competing issues? Well, I have, um, uh, this is one of the, re one of the, um, reasons uh, I was driven to write this book was that very, quick, very quickly on, um, after um, selecting to uh, litigate uh, these, to dedicate my practice to these kind of uh, cases, to representation of the occupied communities and individuals, I realized that, um, that it's more complex than I thought, not in the sense that the cases are difficult to, to win, that's a different matter, but that what is the right thing to do is sometimes not that clear. Um, because um, the interests of my individual um, individual clients, um, the remedy that uh, I can, or at a certain uh, degree of certainty I can get them, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, they collide with what I think would um, uh, hasten or what would uh, uh, contribute to, to, to shortening the shelf life of, of the occupation. Eventually, it's not that... I, my, my, my work is not only about securing remedy to my clients. I'm also, I also see myself and my colleagues, uh, other Israeli human rights organizations, see themselves as uh, part of the movement to end the occupation. And so what does it mean to have, uh, you know, if you are fighting against the erection of a separation barrier on inside that invades the, the, the occupied territory and walls, and walls off um, um, farmland uh, from uh, Palestinian owners um, um, and 
when we fight against uh, the uh, the principal idea that the, that the, an occupying power can do that, and then comes my client, and they and they say, well, you know what? It seems that the litigation against this uh, wall would take years, and in the meantime, we lose our livelihood, and we're not we we cannot uh, make an income. So why don't we ask for a gate to be installed? And 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 naturally, uh, in the interest of my client. This is what I need to do. I need to ask for a gate to be installed. But um, the implications of that would be to perpetuate the very barrier that I that I feel so strongly about uh, that should not have ever been erected. And so these kind of questions are inherent to to work done in in a context of a of a massive human rights abuse and a regime that is that is non democratic. Uh, and and that that drove me to write this book. In the book, you infer that, that there is a sense that the current leadership in Israel is becoming, in, in some ways, more undemocratic. Am I interpreting that correctly? Well, I think that uh, it's true that uh, in the last few years, uh, in the last decade, but mainly in the last four or five years and, and, and growingly in, in the last couple of years, uh, the Israeli government has uh, become um, extremely intolerant to criticism not only from outside, but also from within. And people like me and my colleagues, my friends, uh, and Israeli human rights organizations, even even a group like Breaking the Silence, uh, a group of veteran Israeli soldiers who speak out about their experiences in the West Bank, uh, and a group that I'm the legal advisor of, all, all, all of us are being branded by the government and its ally, uh, far right-wing uh, NGOs, and traitors, as uh, agents of foreign powers, um, lit- and stream of litigation is being, uh, sorry, stream of uh, legislation is initiated by the government and by coalition members um, to suppress our um, function, to to limit our resources, um, and even to um, sanction, put put, uh, put sanctions on 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 certain types of speech. So, for example, today. Um, calling uh, um, publicly for boycott against settlement produce, for example, uh, might result in a, in a lawsuit because the Israeli government has managed to pass a law that would uh, uh, allow um, set, settler, uh, settler, settlers to, to, to sue those who call for boycott. So, um, yes, we're seeing a, a type of Putinist um, uh, a, a process not as bad as in Russia, of course, we're not even close, but we do see this kind of, uh, of, of rationale of uh, trying to suppress uh, uh, um, the, uh, the opposition, the dissenting voices in Israel. And that is, that is a, a major blow to maybe the most important feature of, of, of the state of Israel since it was founded, and that was its uh, desire to be democratic, to allow freedom of speech, to have a political debate on ideas. Um, all this is, uh, uh, we're in a very big trend. Do you see the courts as not only an arbiter, but also an agent of change when it comes to human rights? I think um, judiciary as a concept in a, in, a, in a system where judges are professional and independent. Okay, I can, let's put aside cases where Judges are being dictated rulings by the government. That's a different uh, uh, phenomenon. But in places where judiciary is independent and professional, I think by almost by definition, uh, judiciary um, 
provide a some kind of a, of um, um, a balance, um, or it 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 allows um, weakened uh, communities um, to balance their uh, their the imbalance of power that they suffer from, um, and so. Um, to a certain extent, the judiciary uh, is, will always be, the independent and professional judiciary will always be a theater where human rights lawyers would go to um, at the service of a, um, a political movement for change. But I think that we have to acknowledge that there are limitations to what a judiciary can do, especially in a, in a, in a context where um, the the um, case at hand does not enjoy popular support or or even is objecting uh, uh, that that uh, result, and so um, the Israeli court had been uh, very bit, had provided lots of remedy to Palestinians. I think there are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Palestinians that owe their livelihood, their their property, even their unification with their loved ones that were separated uh, because of the hostilities to the Israeli courts. At the same time, the Israeli court has not been uh, has not been beneficial to attempts to change policies. There were a few cases, and very famous cases, where the court has uh, uh, provided uh, a change in policy. For example, the court, the Israeli court, has outlawed uh, use of torture in uh, in um, uh, security-related investi- investigations of uh, of Palestinians. But all in all, most of the policies and practices that uh, Israel has applied to the West Bank and Gaza Strip uh, were co-shared by the Israeli court. So we have a mixed. Uh, uh, record here, uh, which has to be learned, and, uh, and strategy must, uh, uh, must take into account. And this is one of the purposes of my book, is to, um, to look, to tell the story of four and a half decades of litigation in the Israeli courts uh, in the context of the Israeli occupation and try to, to see what worked and what did not. You seem to be optimistic that at some point in time, the occupation will end, just like apartheid in South Africa or the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. Is Israel and Palestine ready for when that happens? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for that, because you didn't ask me why am I uh, optimistic and and isn't that sorry stupid of me <laughs> when everything looks like it's collapsing. I think um, the, I think the occupation will end. I don't know when, but I think it will because I think that such uh, regimes are by nature not stable, and I think there are cracks beneath the surface that maybe we cannot see when we're standing on it, and it looks solid, but eventually these cracks would uh, would widen, and eventually uh, 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 the occupation will end. Not necessarily in a process; it could happen in a in one go, uh, like it did in, in South Africa and, 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 and uh, with the Berlin Wall. And I do think that we have to prepare. We don't have the luxury of just waiting for it. We have to work to, to bring it. But we also need to think of the day after, because many, many, many uh, uh, bad regimes have ended uh, in human history, uh, only to be replaced by even worse regimes. And if we want to make sure that when the occupation is over, we have a better future for our kids and grandkids, we need to think how that day after would look like, what kind of, of, of an order we would want to have 
in, in the, in the uh, area between the Jordan River and the sea. I, for one, am involved in a group called One Homeland, Two States, which looks at the possibility of having two states because that is what the people want. They want to have uh, a, 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 an Israeli state that is a homeland for the Jewish people and a Palestinian state that is a nation uh, uh, state. Uh, but we also know that people uh, in this region, in our region, do not feel historical, religious, and cultural links only to half of the land. They feel that they that they are uh, um, indigenous of all of the land. And so our group that uh, is uh, composed both of Israelis and Palestinians thinks of solutions that have some kind of that adds to the two-state uh, uh, model uh, a... a a um, federative element or confederative element and uh, would allow Israelis and Palestinians to a free uh, movement uh, in all of the land, would allow them to reside wherever they want, uh, in some way like in the European Union. And we think that uh, such, a, such a model will uh, widen the, the space of concession and things that today are seen um, very painful for Israelis or Palestinians, you know, to be, uh, to, to, to allow the Palestinian state, for example, to uh, control the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron, which Jewish people uh, feel very deeply about, uh, would be an easier thing to absorb if one knows that it doesn't need a visa in order to get there, but actually we are residents of the, all of the country, all of our homeland. So there are different uh, uh, ideas circling in, in Israel-Palestine, and I'm sure that uh, when the right time comes and those ideas are ripe, they would be part of what brings the end of the occupation. As we kind of come full circle, what do you hope that people take away from your experiences as a human rights lawyer in Israel? I think there are two levels of uh, what I would hope people will take from the book. One is General, I think in general, my attempt was to um, nurture and furnish the the discussion, the ongoing discussion on 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 the nature of of litigation for social change. What what the role is uh, of human rights litigation, and I I hope that um, the story of four and a half decades of human rights litigation in Israel Palestine and the insights that I bring from uh, the study of them uh, would be beneficial to those uh, who are involved in, in, in this kind of work uh, in everywhere. And second, um, in the second level, a more specific one, Israel-Palestine, I do hope that the book would allow people that live um, outside Israel and, and Palestine, uh, and probably the most important ones are Americans, because, uh, well, America is the most influential country, both when it comes to Israel and, and when it comes to the world at large. I hope that it will allow Americans to be more, um, to know more about the conflict, to know more about its sensitivities, and to be more, um, um, w when they are involved uh, in, in, that, in that topic, um, to do it out of um, real concern for both Israelis and Palestinians and, and not uh, fall into the traps of uh, disinformation that is generated by all, by all kinds of pressure groups. That's human rights lawyer and author Mechiel Svard. His latest book is The Wall and the Gate, Israel, Palestine, and the Legal Battle for Human Rights from Metropolitan Books. For this edition of In the Author's Voice, I'm Jeff Williams.